Happy New Year, everyone. We hope you all had a wonderful holiday season. I'm Meg Toth, and I'm joined by my co-host, friend, and colleague, Josh Seidman, for our fourth episode of Take It or Leave It. How are you, Josh? Are you fully recovered from the busyness of the year-end and, and holidays and back into the swing of things? Hi, Meg. Uh, Happy New Year, everyone. Thanks for, for joining us today. We have such a great episode, timely episode for you. Uh, Meg, I'm so happy to be back. So happy that we're all here together 2022. I know we're already a few weeks into the new year, but it feels like this year, at least in my house, we tried to keep the holidays going for as long as possible. I don't know if you know any of you out there felt that way too. You know, most years I'm ready to move on, hit the ground running in the new year. The holidays were last year's thing. But this year, I really didn't mind keeping them going. You know, aside from our Christmas tree needing a little extra water and then us almost missing the, the scheduled tree pickup in our town, the decorations, the lights, the colors, I found it to be helpful and, and kind of relaxing, you know, maybe even made getting through some of our year-end projects just a, a little bit easier. And once the holiday decorations were, were down, uh, we quickly replaced them with balloons and streamers for some of our big early year family birthdays. You know, there's nothing like waking up to this giant five-foot Paw Patrol balloon that's still floating in my living room every morning. Uh, not as, as helpful with the work and, you know, probably be up until Valentine's Day or so. <laughs> Same here. It's, it's funny that you say that because we actually have been incredibly slow to get our decorations down this year. It's almost become embarrassing <laughs> to tell you. I think I just had my husband turn our red and green lights off at the front of our house last night. Um, there you go. But, <laughs> no, no time like the present. <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, and in addition to keeping our decorations up longer than is publicly acceptable, it was definitely a unique holiday for, for us as well, fighting off COVID, dealing with lack of childcare, school closures, and then the busy year-end work. But we survived and are happy to be back at it and super excited to be here with you today and our guest speakers to talk about yet another interesting and very relevant topic, managing leave, accommodations, and, and other issues for remote or hybrid workforces, as well as some important tax considerations that we're going to be talking about for companies who now are finding themselves with employees relocating to states where they may not have ever had employees before. Super interesting stuff. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, and I have to tell you, Meg, this is one of my favorite topics when working with our clients. There are so many interrelated moving pieces to consider, you know, and, and we said this for other episodes too, but this really can get unique to the specific company that we work with and how they want to handle the situation, the nature of their workforce. You know, before COVID, some companies, you know, thought about maybe rolled out telework programs, but it wasn't a widespread practice. Now, though, with so many workforces going fully remote or adopting hybrid work policies over the last couple of years, uh, new leave laws coming online, especially related to, to COVID, you know, paid leave related to COVID, and workers showing, you know, an increased focus on their own time off benefits and seeking COVID-related accommodations, many employers for the first time are facing these new issues related to managing leaves and accommodations for their remote workers. Yeah, definitely. And not only is it a new issue, but now that that genie is sort of out of the bottle, so to speak, it's probably unlikely that this way of working is going to go away anytime soon. So it is very important and more important than ever for employers to understand and learn how to manage leaves and accommodations Mm -hmm. and become familiar with possible tax implications for remote or hybrid workforces. And that's why we're so lucky, without further ado, to be joined by two amazing guest speakers today, Tracy Billows and Paul Drisner, to discuss these important issues. I couldn't agree more. Today, we have the honor and pleasure of being joined by two of the best that SciFarth has to offer. First up is one of our firm's top lead and accommodation advisors, Tracy Billows. 
personally, Tracy has been one of the most influential mentors in, in both my and Meg's careers. You know, we can safely say that we wouldn't be anywhere close to where we are today without her and her guidance. Anytime we all get together, it is always a great day. So buckle in, folks. You are in for a real treat today. Now, beyond being an amazing mentor, Tracy is the co-managing partner of SciFar Chicago office and past chair of the Chicago office labor and employment department. She concentrates her practice on representing and counseling employers throughout the country in the entire range of employment law matters. Tracy provides extensive advice and strategic guidance to clients on a wide array of human resources topics and issues, including policy development and review, auditing the human resources functions, leave and absence management, EEO compliance, reductions in force, employee relations, labor relations, performance management, discipline and discharge, and various other areas with an emphasis on instituting best practices and avoiding litigation. Tracy, welcome. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I have to tell you, though, after that intro, I hope I can live up to all of those expectations here. You also made me very tired as well hearing that whole long list. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We're so excited to have you here, Tracy. (laughs) You definitely will live up to all those expectations. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you have faith in me. It's the same faith I have in the two of you. You guys are amazing. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Thanks. And also with us today to touch upon some very important tax considerations for companies suddenly finding themselves with employees in different states all over the country is our colleague and tax expert, Paul Drisner. Paul's practice is primarily focused on structuring transactions and investments in a tax-efficient manner, but he regularly assists clients in a wide range of employment-related tax matters, including the taxation of employee fringe benefits, and other compensation, employment tax compliance, the taxation of employment, and other litigation settlements and state income, employment, and sales tax matters. We're so glad to have you with us today, Paul. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yes, Paul, thank, thanks for being here. Can't wait to, to dive into all the, uh, all the tax-related issues to this important topic today. So Tracy, our first question is for you. In your practice over the last two years, what are some of the new leave-related challenges that you have been helping your clients navigate? Oh my goodness, there's been so many um, where to even start. So certainly there have been a number of laws specifically related to COVID, whether it's COVID paid sick leave, whether it's expanding current paid sick leave laws to include COVID covered reasons specifically, whether it's like Colorado, which just did a pandemic, you know, public health emergency type sick leave, not directly tied to COVID, which, you know, has its own unique challenges and such. Certainly figuring out the FMLA, Family Medical Leave Act, and many other laws have always provided time off, but are they needed in a remote hybrid environment, right? If someone's working from home, do they really need to take the time or is there workplace flexibility available? And if you do have an FMLA situation, how are you tracking that for someone who's completely remote or hybrid? You know, all of these things come into play and they make it incredibly difficult. We've also seen an explosion of paid family leave laws that have come on the scene. And some of them were already on the books, but, you know, unfortunately, their timing was in the middle of COVID in terms of becoming effective, which also complicated this landscape. And the failure to have a federal solution. I mean, I know the two of you know, because you've both spoken on this topic at various times. And, you know, we've certainly issued a number of alerts, but Without a federal solution to whether it's COVID paid sick or overall paid sick or overall paid family, 
we're left with these patchwork of, you know, state and local laws and employers, you know, have to navigate all of them. So it's been an interesting couple of years, to say the least. Yeah. And, and I, I feel like I say this all the time, but I can't believe it's already been a couple of years. A, a lot going on in those couple of years with so many laws and moving pieces. Yeah, I think it'd be helpful maybe to start at the top and, and, and talk about more details related to the FMLA and then move down into the more specific laws. So how does the federal FMLA handle remote workers and, and what are some of the common issues that have come up there over the last couple of years? Well, that's exactly right, Meg. I mean, the FMLA, as all of you know, say if you have 50 or more employees within a 75-mile radius, the FMLA applies. Well, that works really well when you're talking about a brick-and-mortar office or warehouse or manufacturing site or things of that sort. What do you do when everyone's remote and working from home? Does that rule still apply? How does it apply? And trust me, the FMLA has been in place since, oh gosh, 1993. It wasn't contemplating this situation, right? It wasn't written for the notion that remote workers are going to be, you know, perhaps the dominant number of employees that you're going to be looking at. So some employers have, you know, taken the position that COVID is sort of temporary. And so wherever the employee was based out of for purposes of their prior office location or work location, that's what they're going to continue to do. For other employers, because it's not temporary, they are reevaluating sort of the FMLA eligibility because people are now going to be 100% remote. And in those cases, they need to look at their work location and determine, you know, what is the best way to proceed? Is the 50 employee threshold still met? Some employers choose to waive, by the way, I have to say the 75 mile radius. And it's just simpler from an administrative standpoint when they do that. But there are risks in doing that. Because if someone is not FMLA eligible technically because they don't meet the definitions and those requirements of the FMLA, an employer could find itself having to give more than that 12 weeks of leave if the person moves or relocates or otherwise does fall now where they do in fact qualify for the FMLA. And I think this is why for many employers, their heads start to hurt because trying to track all this, if you would have told me you know, 10 years ago that I'd have to worry about, you know, home locations, office locations. Are they one and the same? Are they different? I wouldn't have even believed you at that time. But now that is our reality and we have to work through it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really, Tracy, I mean, even just like we said, starting at the top, the different permutations of all these these challenges and the different setups at at, at the workplace. I mean, even just knowing where your employees are working from home, right? Maybe they're not actually working from the home address that you have on the books. You know, maybe they've taken six months in a different location. And how does that factor in? And that's just the FMLA, right? So now if we we peel back a layer and go a little bit deeper, we we can start focusing on some of these state and local leave laws. And we'll start with the paid sick leave topic gives employers headaches all over the country. Putting aside these COVID-related, you know, paid leave laws for a second. We have, you know, multi-state nationwide employers that are facing, you know, a few dozen sort of regular non-COVID paid sick leave mandates. Can you talk a little bit about those laws and you know, sort of standards for how do I know if my business is going to be covered by one of these state or local sick leave laws? Mm-hmm. It's a great question. And unfortunately, there's no one size fits all answer. That's what makes this so difficult. Some of the laws that apply to employers have hours thresholds. What that means is once I work 80 hours in a particular jurisdiction, guess what? 
I'm covered under that paid sick leave law, even if it's not my quote unquote home jurisdiction or normal work jurisdiction, mm-hmm, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So do I, as an employer now have to comply for this individual? Do I come up with a different compliance scheme, right? That's one way that the eligibility comes into play. Another is just simply every employer. So there's not the typical sort of 50 employee threshold like we see with the FMLA or some of the others. Just if you've got any employees in a jurisdiction, guess what? You're covered. And then others have these two-tiered, which makes it really complicated, as both of you know, where if you have a certain employee threshold, it's paid sick leave. But if you have a different employee threshold, it's unpaid sick leave. Great. Now I got to track two different types of sick leave in my jurisdictions, potentially, because I think, oh, I'm off the hook, right? I don't have to worry about these paid sick leave laws. But you got to take a look at some of the laws because they have these unpaid provisions as well. I mean, you know, others do look at, it's very, very rare. Josh, you probably would know off the top of your head. I wouldn't. Which jurisdictions actually say you have a physical location, right? Where you have some mm-hmm. of the employees at a physical location. But I have to be honest with you, so many of the new laws that have come out in the last years, I can't remember a new one that has that as a requirement. So I think I'd really be giving mm-hmm. myself to go back and find one. And that's traditionally how a lot of these leave laws were enacted, you know, where your location was, how many employees at that location. And that's really not the case when you look at paid sick leave issues and compliance today. Right. And, and it's a great point. And, and it's really a, a few sort of low number of these, a you know, few dozen of the laws that require you to have a physical work site. And to your point, it, it can get you have just one or two folks move into the state or the city. And all of a sudden, the full force of the requirements could be sitting there staring the employer in the face. I, I agree completely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With these general low bars in terms of, you know, which employers are covered by a paid sick leave law and which employees may be eligible. And with a hybrid remote work setup, it sounds like, you know, employers are going to be subject to so many of these different laws. So do you, are you familiar or could you talk a little bit about some options and considerations for employers with multi-state and nationwide operations or just employees everywhere now that they're remote and how they, you know, can set up policies or practices to comply with all of these different laws? Happy to. I mean, the, the issue that I think from an outset that's super important, and the two of you do a great job of this when we work on these projects, is understanding the client's goals and hopeful outcomes at the outset, right? You know, so many times we hear from employers, administrative burden, top concern of mine. This has to be the simplest process, policy, payroll system we can come up with. Others, cost. I am not paying a dime more than I have to because this is a significant cost on us. And this is going, you know, if I give people more time in a jurisdiction than what they're really entitled to, that's going to hurt my budget, my revenue, my profits, my bottom line, et cetera. So it's not that employers don't want to give paid sick leave, but the cost of doing so, they have to be mindful of it. So, and there's many other considerations that come into play there, but those are what I mean by sort of figuring out upfront what are the goals, outcomes, objectives. Then there's sort of the risk tolerance and the compliance, you know, expectations. You both know I've had clients say to all of us, look, I I realize I'm never going to get 100% compliant and I I just need to wrap my head around that. So I want to be 80% compliant. I want to be 90% compliant, knowing that I may have a one-off situation in a limited jurisdiction or in a limited area. Others, on the other hand, say we are risk averse. 
I need to be 100% compliant across the board. You need to tell me how I go about doing that. Well, as you can see, all of these things can be in competition with each other to ultimately reach the right sort of solution. I think the most common one people try to do is a one-size-fits-most solution, which really does look at, okay, so looking at all the jurisdictions, you know, what do I need to provide to comply with that 80 or 90%? And then having addenda for particular states or localities that go along with that policy to get you to that 100% compliance if there are some very unique nuances that need to be taken into consideration. You know, the big issues here for employers is, you know, generally speaking, um, they want oftentimes an ease in administering the program, but you can't front load everywhere. And if you do front load, it has some serious consequences. For others, they're happy to do the carryover, but they don't want to have to track the usage limits and have it get out of hand, right? And so sometimes you've got to tweak these one-size-fits-most policies to meet those goals and objectives we talked about at the outset, while also taking into consideration the compliance options. I mean, some employers do choose to do one policy for each jurisdiction, and that is an option. It's administratively very burdensome, and it doesn't necessarily work so well in this hybrid work environment where people are moving around, not necessarily staying in where they were previously working, or to your point you know, that you made earlier, maybe I go work six months somewhere else, whether it's at a second home or a family member's home or whatever. And, you know, that makes the approach of having a policy in every jurisdiction in our new world of remote hybrid very, very difficult to manage. Yeah, absolutely, Tracy. It's funny, you know, thinking about one of those last points you made about there being multiple, you know, a company having a policy for every jurisdiction, every state, every city that has a mandate that that is required to follow. If you have employees moving around, working remote, coming into the office two days a week, working from home three days a week, you can have employees that have multiple buckets of paid sick leave that might be available depending on which state or which city they're they're working in. Have you have you dealt with anything like that? I mean, because I can imagine that would get real unwieldy really quickly for for a company. It does. It does. And you know, I have seen clients try to manage that where they turn off the accrual under one bank and start it under a different bank and then try to combine the time. But then you get into some of the other, what I'll call more procedural issues as opposed to substantive issues. What am I putting on the pay stub in terms of their paid sick leave? Which jurisdiction do I show total amounts? Do I show, you know, something else some way? How do I know what covered reasons apply depending on the jurisdiction? What about increments of use? You know, how am I going to apply some of those things? And so I have seen employers try to do that. I will say, you know, if an employer has a sophisticated payroll HRIS system, it can be done. But when you have these multiple banks, it really opens you up to errors and the potential for misapplication of the appropriate rules. Because, you know, at some point in time, it can get incredibly difficult to keep track of all these banks, how they work, when they apply, what are the rules, et cetera. And, you know, let's be clear, managers and leaders are the ones who are generally getting these requests for time off. They're not going to be up on, oh, this person has three banks and this person has rules if they're here, but they have different rules here. That's just not a reasonable request of managers and leaders. 
because they'd be spending all their time just trying to figure out these policies and how to apply them. And they have many, many other responsibilities that they need to focus on. Yeah, definitely. It sounds like paid sick leave has been complicated for a number of years now, and this hybrid remote work situation is not making it any any easier. In fact, probably making it more complicated. So switching gears a little bit to talk about you know paid family and medical leave, and then paid family leave laws, and, and how those are impacted by remote work. How do the considerations for employer coverage, employee eligibility, and sort of general availability of these benefits play out in the paid family leave world for remote workers? Yeah, I mean, paid family leave has really exploded and there's a whole host of different coordination of issues with respect to paid family leave. Some of the paid family leave laws have short-term disability elements. Some of the paid family leave laws have paid parental leave elements. Some of the paid family leave laws, you know, are in addition to existing benefits. Some are run concurrent with FMLA, some are not. And then it really also is coming down to, you know, especially during COVID right now, is COVID a serious health condition and is COVID meeting the definitions of some of these paid family leave laws where there's going to be extended absences, not the day or two or things of that sort. And so this has been incredibly complicated for employers to navigate at this point in time. You know, the other thing is there are state paid family leave programs where the state's administering it. Some of them are private plans. Sometimes an employer has an option between the two. And it really does come down to, from my perspective for the employer, how best to coordinate all these benefits and policies and rights and come up with the best solution. Yeah, yeah. And and, and Tracy, you know, what, what about now on the accommodation front? You know, are there any new or or novel issues that you're helping clients with related to accommodations for remote workers? There are a few. Um, There definitely are. So, you know, one of the things I'll never forget at the beginning of the pandemic when everyone was shutting down and going home, you probably both saw this because I know we've had these discussions, the three of us you know, does this mean now remote work is going to automatically be the accommodation of the future? And we're never going to be able to say you have to come back into the office. You're never going to be able to say in-person work is required. I don't think that that has come to fruition, nor do I think it ever will. Here's why. Business circumstances change all the time. There are always going to be certain things that are going to come up where being in person is likely going to be necessary, whether it's for a training, whether it's for a collaborative meeting, whether it's for meeting with clients, whether it's for doing a sales pitch, right? You know, some of this is dictated by your own organization, but some of it's dictated by who you're serving, who are your customers, what are your clients demanding? And I think while it will be incredibly difficult to say no one can ever work from home again, on a remote basis, I do think employers will have the ability to show that there are legitimate reasons and essential functions that do require some on-site presence. Will it be full-time 100% of the time for all positions? Probably not. But I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that because someone has worked 12 months remotely means that there isn't a reason, a legitimate business reason, essential job function to have them come in, even if it is only on a hybrid schedule on a going forward basis. 
you know, we've seen also a lot just, you know, outside of the legal issues, but, you know, organizations struggling from a cultural perspective as to what they would do if they went 100% remote, right? Building relationships. The reason why, you know, the three of us work so well together is because we've had opportunities to work together remote and in person. We've had opportunities to get to know each other, to collaborate. And that can be done over Zoom and virtually, but it's not done as easily. And, you know, query whether in some cases, some relationships would have been as fully developed if, you know, they solely started in this remote world. So I think, you know, this is a long-winded way of saying, I think there are a number of things that can be done in the accommodations area, absent saying, well, we just need to now accept full 100% remote. The other thing that I think has exploded our accommodations to different employer policies right now, if you are coming back into the office, right? So does an employer have a vaccine mandate? Does an employer have a masking requirement? Does the employer have a testing requirement? Does an employer have other safety protocols? You know, we're seeing accommodations requests related to all of those things, both from a disability perspective and from a religious perspective. And how do I tie this all back to leaves? Well, if an employer can't accommodate the individual, they have to look at leave as a temporary accommodation, potentially, in case circumstances may change. I think about, like, say, a pregnant worker who says, I'm not comfortable getting the vaccine right now. My doctor says I shouldn't get that. Well, depending on, you know, the individual, their position, how much time off it would entail, an employer would have to do an individualized assessment to determine, well, would leave of some sort be the right thing to do until the person can meet these requirements of coming into the office? So the leave world is so inextricably linked with accommodations in so many ways that I think we're going to continue to see accommodations have a direct impact on leave cases as well. Not that we didn't before now, but to the extent anyone thought that they were separate issues before now, nobody is thinking that anymore, given our new realities. Yeah, absolutely. On this topic of is remote work the accommodation of the future and and how to set clear expectations when in-person work is required and and it may be an essential job function, do you have any recommendations or, or, you know, thoughts on what we've been telling clients in terms of how to set those clear expectations regarding in-person work and, and when it is an essential job function to help avoid such arguments that, you know, remote work must be an accommodation? So the first thing that I would say is be reasonable. We're not going to go back to the days of saying, yes, everything has to be in person now. Every meeting has to be in person. Every interaction has to be in person. So be reasonable. I also think that people need to look at the specific function and whether it is effectively being performed remotely. There's a big difference between I've been doing it remotely and I've been doing it effectively remotely. And for some, you know, there may have been lost productivity. For some, there may have been greater errors with people being remote. For some, you know, there may have been um, additional work that was put on others because someone was remote. In those circumstances, you know, it is legitimate and people should be looking at setting expectations in those areas and potentially mandating on-site presence where appropriate. But as I said before, you know, be reasonable in that regard. It's easy to sort of fall back into our old patterns and say, okay, well, now it's safe to come back. So we're all going to come back. That's not necessarily going to allow you to get people back into the workplace, right? Because they have worked effectively remotely. So you need to be able to demonstrate as an employer what is and is not working in the remote situations. 
and tie that back to the essential job functions. And what's not working remotely, whether it's because the function really can't be performed remotely or the individual is not effective at performing it remotely, that's where the emphasis and focus should be on when someone's got to come back or in what capacity. Very interesting. Uh, While remote work has many benefits for employees and employers, as you've all heard, there certainly are a lot of issues in terms of leaves and accommodations for employers to navigate. And another one of these issues involves really important tax implications for employers. Completely agree. And as employment lawyers, we are not always thinking about or really even aware of some of these tax implications, which is why we are so lucky to have someone like Paul on our team to keep us all in line and informed on those issues. Paul, understanding that tax laws and considerations are going to be varied by state and other factors, what should employers with remote sort of transient workforces be on the lookout for from a tax perspective with employees starting to work in different states and, and even new states where the company has never had employees before? Meg, that's a, that's a great question and one that I've been asked many, many times over the past year, year and a half. You're correct that the laws do vary by state, but there's still some general tax considerations that an employer must address if they have employees who are working remotely or even more so when they have employees who are transient. First and foremost among those, and the ones that I think employers are really already sensitive to, but need to still you know, stay on top of, is state income and employment tax withholding. That's the area that I think employers really first think of when they have employees who go to other states to the extent they think of any tax consequences. Yeah, as a general rule, an employer with employees who are working remotely in a new state will need to examine that state's laws and determine if they have an obligation then to withhold income and employment taxes uh, you know, from the wages that they pay to employees who are working in that state. If an employee decides to work in one state remotely for a long period of time, that's not as bad for the employer as an employee who decides to bounce around from state to state. That really increases the compliance obligations of the employer and, and the risks there to the employer of not of not complying with the you know state withholding obligations. You know, if an employee decides to work remotely in a state where the employer doesn't have other employees, that makes it even more difficult for the employer in the sense now they have a new state that they have to register with, uh, assuming they want to comply with the rules. And you know, employers typically do not want to get on the State Department's of Revenue's radars, so to speak. And so therefore, they prefer to register with as few states as possible. But sometimes they just need to register if they have employees who start working in a, in a new state where they're not already registered. And, and lastly, regarding this, you know, if an employee does not change their state of residence, but only decides to temporarily work remotely, like an employee who decides to spend two months working at their vacation home in another state, the employer may have an obligation to not only withhold taxes for that new state, but continue to withhold taxes for the employee's state of residence. And income tax withholding and employment tax withholding is just one of the considerations that an employer needs to think about when it has a a kind of a work from anywhere policy and allows employees to work remotely. In addition to withholding, the employer needs to consider what is the correct state in which it needs to pay unemployment tax. This is generally not difficult for a remote employee who's working in one location. But if again, if you have employees who bounce around or switch from year to year uh, or throughout the year in different states, it really becomes difficult then because, you know, the rules are convoluted when it comes to employees who work in multiple locations. But there's also, you know, non-employment related tax consequences that employers really must not overlook. For example, an employer may find itself suddenly obligated to collect sales tax in a new state simply because it has an employee who decides to work in that state. And this could be a big burden. 
not only a burden compliance-wise, uh, you know, having to collect tax from customers uh, if they're selling, you know, taxable products or taxable services, but could also lead to a competitive disadvantage if they have to start now charging their customers more by collecting tax when other of their competitors who have no presence in the state are not collecting tax. And this is due to just having, you know, even just one employee in the state for a short period of time can trigger this nexus that satisfies, you know, the constitutional requirements to require where state can require an employer to have to withhold sales tax. Without getting into all the details and the, and the tax minutiae here, employers can be subject to, you know, withholding, I'm sorry, from collecting sales tax uh, if they satisfy certain economic nexus requirements. But if they do only occasional sales into a state, not high enough to, to, to meet what they call economic nexus, just having an employee there would trigger physical nexus and therefore obligate the employer to start withholding sales tax. In addition to sales tax, an employer could now become subject to income tax in a state because they have an employee there. Or if they're already subject to income tax in a state, can re- result in increased apportionment of income to that state and which would increase their state tax liability. So it's not only withholding taxes, which everybody thinks about. I've got an employee there. I need to withhold income and employment taxes. But it could trigger sales tax liability. It could trigger other income tax liability. And these are things that, that employers really need to consider before they let employees kind of pick up and, and decide where to work. Mm-hmm. Paul, it is. It is. It's so interesting, and and so many you know unique elements and components. I mean, I'm I'm curious. You know, just in, in terms of helping our clients kind of navigate these different pieces. I mean, do you have any sort of practical tips? I mean, things like re, you know, resources, tips on the ground for how they can best manage this. Is there anything that you're seeing that you know sort of recommendations that they can think about to to help? take care and, and, and pay attention to these different moving pieces? First and foremost, I think employers need to, well, I understand they want to be accommodating to employees. I think they need to take a step back before they institute kind of blanket work from anywhere policies. They need to see what their footprint is already, what states they're covering, you know, what states are already filing. And it may not be a big deal for an employer to allow employees to go work in a state where it already has a facility, it already has a group of employees. It's just maybe a little you know, more withholding for, for one state versus the other, but they're not going to have to register in a new state. They're not going to have to you know, start imposing the possibility of sales tax obligations in that state or income tax obligations. It's when employers allow employees to really work from anywhere without ramifications other than you know, just the obligation that they let the employer know where they're working from that employers can get into trouble or really you know, wake up one morning and find that they have all these additional compliance obligations. And I think that once once they determine an employer determines the states that they want to allow their employees to work in, you know, and it may be new states, there may be some new states that decide to let employees work in, but they, they need to, you know, get a handle on, you know, what, what the withholding obligations are. And, you know, if, if, it, if it's all 50 states, it becomes more burdensome. And there are some resources out there to look and see kind of what the withholding obligations are in 50 states or Thankfully, you're really only talking usually about 42 states or 41 states just because thankfully eight or nine states don't have uh, income tax withholding obligations. But, you know, and if it's, a, if it's just a smaller handful of states, it's, easy, it's easier to, to navigate. But really, you know, that, that's what they need to do is kind of get out in front of it. And, and some employers, what I've been seeing, some employers just take a look and see where, you know, they take a survey perhaps of the employees who want to work remotely and find out where the majority of them want to work and maybe narrow down, you know, to a half dozen states or so where they're going to have most of the folks there. And either limit employees to working in those states and not allow remote work in other states, or a lot of them really take the position that, you know, if 90% of my remote workers are in these four or five states, we're going to comply there. We're going to do what we need to do. But if we have an outlier who decides to go to one state and they're the only employee there and they're only going there for the summer, 
we're going to you know turn a kind of a blind eye to that and continue to withhold in this in the normal state and not register there. I'm not saying that that's technically correct or that's you know the legal the correct legal approach, but as a practical matter, employers I think are looking and saying it's it's not worth the effort and they'll take the risk to not register and not withhold for three or four months while an employee is off at their summer home in some state where they're the only employee there. So. It really comes down to a balancing act, a benefit and burdens analysis, and uh, you know how much does it cost to comply, and how much does an employer really want to subject themselves to to the scrutiny of another state versus you know taking their chances that well they'll they'll pay a little penalty if it turns out that they did that they you know didn't withhold correctly and they get caught. Again, that's not technically correct. That's not the legal approach. That's not certainly what I recommend. But that's you know a business decision that employers need to make. Mm-hmm. Yep, no, that that's that's fantastic, Paul. And th- thanks for for sharing all that with us. So it's all super interesting stuff at a domestic level. I think we've all come across clients who actually have employees who ask, or or maybe they don't ask, but they find themselves working perhaps from a different country when they're really a U.S. employee, but they want to work from somewhere outside of the U.S. Understanding, again, this is probably going to be highly dependent on what country that is and the country's laws, but do you have any thoughts or advice or or considerations that our clients should be thinking about if they have an employee that asks or or wants to work outside of the U.S. but is actually a U.S. employee from from a tax perspective? Well, I think the first thing is, and I think you touched on it right there at the end of your question, is to ask. You know, I've always recommended to employers that even if they allow employees kind of a work from anywhere, that they allow that only within the, you know, within the U.S. Because as much as every state has its own laws, like you pointed out, every foreign country has their own laws. And on top of that, the U.S. has multiple tax treaties, you know, or, or treaties with multiple countries, I should say, which really also complicates things. So once you allow an employ- employees to pick up and go work at any country, you're really opening the door to other risks. There's the risk, just like with you know going to a different state. There's the risk of not withholding income tax appropriately in the foreign country, and you know the concern there to some employee employers, especially if they are doing business in that country but don't really otherwise have a physical presence there. They're concerned that now you know they're violating laws, and and again they'd have they'd have to look at each country's law. They'd have to look at the treaty. They have to figure out really what the requirements are there. And if they you know have an employee who's relocating to a foreign country for an extended period of time and they want to comply, now they're registering with a foreign countries, Department of Revenue or IRS equivalent, which, you know, as much as employers don't want to, you know, register, become uh, known by other states, they, I think, even less so want to become known by other countries or let other countries know that they're doing business there. And the other thing to keep in mind, too, aside, again, aside from the withholding, is the fact that having employees work in foreign countries, depending upon what the employee is doing there, depending upon how long the employee is there, that could suddenly subject the company to income tax in that country. You know, which may depend again on length of time and what kind of work is being done. But these are things that the employer needs to be aware of and really look into. Because also, like I mentioned, you know, length of time, for instance, you know, that there's things, that there's provisions in tax treaties that allow employees to work for some limited amount of time in a country, but those same without without imposition of income tax. But that same exception for length of time doesn't apply with regard to the the company's income tax. So if the company is doing business there, but doesn't otherwise have a presence there, again, having an employee can trigger that presence. So there's things to consider, but I always tell clients, you know, get out in front of this. Have a policy that prohibits working in a foreign country without first getting approval from the appropriate supervisor or manager, what have you. So you're not surprised to find that uh, at the end of the year, the employee says, oh, by the way, um, you've been withholding in this state, but I've been living in XYZ country uh, for the last year, and, and you'll find out about it when it's too late. 
Yeah, that that is Paul. Great, great insight, uh, great tips, and you know we're we're very lucky to have you for both this topic and all of our sort of L and E labor and employment and, and tax overlap topics. Thank you for joining us today. We we really truly appreciate your time. It's been my pleasure. Yeah, thank, thank, you. thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks to you and Tracy both. It's been a great topic, and and we really appreciate it. Yep, and thank you everyone for joining us for today's episode. Uh, we look forward to bringing you the next one uh, in just a, a couple of weeks. Take care. Talk soon.